Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. Judy de Simone shared her experience of over 30 years teaching and had some great tips for teachers. She also talked about her ceramic work and inspirations. I loved hearing about how careful she is about the finishes, keeping some areas matte while allowing other bits of gloss. Her transformation from realism to abstraction was also inspiring to hear. Judy de Simone is a ceramic artist living and creating art in Westchester, Pennsylvania. She earned a Bachelor of Science degree in art education at Moore College of Art and Design in Philadelphia. Her degree allowed her to pursue a career and vocation as a middle school art educator with 6th, 7th, and 8th graders at a public school in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. It was in this classroom that Judy taught herself various ceramic hand-building techniques, leading to a love of the medium. Her ceramic enthusiasm was shared with her students. For 30 years, Judy's ceramics were realistic wall pieces consisting of animals, flowers, leaves, and personal diary scenes executed in bas relief. With public school retirement came a shedding of the old and a blossoming of the new to the quick, spontaneous, why not art that she currently pursues. The why not view was reinforced in her retirement job, teaching art to kindergarten through eighth graders at her local Catholic school. The inhibitions of the younger students' ideas and techniques reinforced Judy's personal philosophy of why not, which she applies to her ceramics. What luck to have had 300 part-time muses at one's disposal. After 39 years of teaching art to kindergarten through 8th grade students, Miss de Simone hung up her classroom apron to pursue her personal artistic endeavors. She now exhibits her work at galleries and craft fairs. Let's hear from Judy. I am talking with Judy de Simone, and you have such a wealth of experience. I would love to start with your background, if you could walk us through your journey as an artist and an educator. I started in the Catholic schools and in the Catholic Mm -hmm. schools, there was absolutely no art all the way up Mm. to 12th grade. So anything I did was on my own. And the only thing that I knew existed were crayons. And then later on, we had some markers, crayons and coloring books. Mm. And my father was quite the Renaissance man and really good in watercolors. But when we were born, my brother and I, he stopped doing them. So I used to go downstairs and play with his tools, hammering and and sawing and nailing. And then I want to say in about seventh and eighth grade, I started to paint and draw the comics in the back of the newspaper because my mother got me some watercolors, just that eight pack of watercolors. Mm -hmm. And that's really what got me interested in it. And then I took a class at Moore College of Art and Design where I eventually went for my BS on Saturdays. And then for my senior year, 
I asked if I could go to public school. I was at a prep school, a Catholic prep school, and they had no art. So mm -hmm. then my mother let me go to the public high school and they helped me with my portfolio. And I felt like I had died and gone to heaven because I could mm -hmm. actually take art during the, the school day. So that's what my journey was, was just doing stuff on my own and then eventually getting the bug and pursuing it. And then I did two years at Moore College of Art and went to California. I actually went to Cal State in Fullerton mm -hmm. for about two years. And I was blown away by the art out there because they had crafts. And I'll never forget, there was a guy, Al Ching, who was my craft instructor, and he was phenomenal. And in on the East Coast at the time, they just had slick stuff and lots of plexiglass and glass and whatever came from Europe to New York to Philadelphia was just a totally different head trip than what was in California with the crafts. And I always attributed that from the Scandinavian influence by the people that went to California. And then you had the Asian influence. So you got this amalgam of cultures that were influencing artwork very differently than on the East Coast. So I just was blown away by the craft movement that was in California. Yeah. And is that where you started ceramics? Or did no, that come later? I, I actually started ceramics in my middle school classroom oh. when I got my public school job, which was in 1979. I wanted to do ceramics with the kids. So I had an old kiln in my classroom and clay, and I just started to do a lot of hand building projects of my own to teach mm -hmm. the kids how to do them. And it just blossomed from there. I did bas relief, very classical sculpture for 30 years where I would do diary pieces in clay. They had low relief and high relief on them. And if there was an event in my life that was particularly memorable, then I would make it out of clay. And they were maybe about nine by seven and they could be hung up on the wall. And then I stopped doing them for a while and started doing low relief flowers and animals and people and mm -hmm. just tried to get as perfect as I absolutely could. And then I was turned on to underglazes by a grad instructor that I had and started to be very painterly with the underglazes mm -hmm. and literally did that till I retired from public school, which was 31 years later. And then when I retired from public school, I still was teaching at the local Catholic school three days a week, but I did a 180 and started to do the loose vessels that I'm doing now, which are, who cares? Anything goes, let's mm. be quirky and lots of color. Yeah, I would love to see some of that earlier work because I feel like just hearing you talk, it sounds like you've gotten sort of more abstract as you've aged and gotten more, like, I guess you talked about being sort of free with the glazes, but yeah, there's definitely sort of a freedom and a looseness there that's really beautiful. Well, thank you. Yes, I just, 
I felt like I could relate to the journey that other artists that are very famous have gone through where they have this very conservative classical period and then suddenly it's a breakout mm. and yeah, who cares? I'm going to look at this because this is interesting to me and I'm going to go away from the classical stuff. But I know if I have to go there, I still have that hidden in my muscles somewhere, mm. my fingers. Yeah, it comes back to this idea of kind of knowing the rules before you break the rules. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then in terms of teaching, so did you, when you were in school, did, were you studying art education or were you getting like a BFA in, in fine arts? No, I was getting a BS in art education. Uh-huh. I, I come from a family of teachers and my yeah. Both of my parents said to me, you need to have a paycheck every two weeks and a (laughs) pension. So I was rebelling against that maybe for about a year. And then after I came back from California, it was, oh, yes, I need to get a BS in art education and do art every day, but yet get a paycheck and a pension. Yeah. And so you studied art education. And then when you graduated, did you pretty much start teaching right away? I did. Actually, the day I graduated was my first substitute job. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I graduated in December and was able to substitute that day. I'll never forget that. I went to a high school and at five o'clock I was back in Philadelphia in a pretty dress attending my graduation. Amazing. Yeah. And jumping right into high school, especially right as you're graduating, you know, you're just a few years older than those students. And that must have been a wild way to kind of dive in. Absolutely. And I remember going, oh, this is me now. I'm telling them what to do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's me all alone up here. I can do this. And then I know you said you taught in public schools, but you also taught in Catholic schools? I did. When I retired from the public schools after 31 years, I finished the rest up to 39 years in the Catholic schools. Mm -hmm. And that was a very different population. The population I had in the public schools was a dying steel mill town where you had a very diverse population and the kids were much lower socioeconomically. Mm. Then you had farm kids, you had city kids in the public schools. And then when I was at the Catholic schools, then one Catholic school I taught for a year and then it closed. And another Catholic school that I was in was in West Philadelphia. And then where I stayed for about six years for the rest of till 39 years, they were very wealthy children. Mm. And it was such a different culture to go Mm. from the poor kids and a diverse population to a very wealthy population. Yeah. And did you find that the Catholic schools were similar to what you talked about when you were a kid, that there was really no art? So were you sort of bringing art in or had it shifted over those years? There was a teacher before me in the Catholic school that had been there for a while. Mm-hmm. And her teaching style was extremely different than mine. And I found that 
with the structure that they emphasize and the discipline that they emphasize in Catholic school, I had to teach the children to have an imagination. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me, I want to say the first couple of months, like, where did you come from? Who are you? And I used to say, think SpongeBob SquarePants. I mean, there's a sponge under the sea and he's delighting children all over the place. That's imagination or the fantasy books you read. That's imagination. That's what I want to bring out in you. Where I found that when the public schools, those students, when I would introduce imagination to them, they would just eat it up. But Mm -hmm. these kids had trouble dealing with that and letting go and using their imagination. But eventually they bought into it and they enjoyed it. I used to play this game called draw on the board at the end of a period if there was some time left over before the class ended. And I'd have two kids go up to the board and I said, this is not a contest. This is just let's enjoy your spirit. And I would have some goofy thing for them to draw like a bat flying. And I said, okay, now we got two bats. We've got a wooden bat or you've got an animal bat or a pig riding a skateboard. Things like that (laughs) that were just silly and innocent. And the, the public school kids just ate it up. And then the Catholic school kids, initially, they looked at me like, what? You want me to draw a pig riding a skateboard? (laughs) I said, yeah, just have fun. And then after a while, as I said, they eventually just loosened up and they went, yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. And kids always clamor to play that game at the end of a period, which is a lot of fun. Mm. Yeah, that's a nice way to kind of wrap up and in a loose, yeah, like letting your creativity flow a little bit. Yes. And I said, I don't care if they're stick figures, you know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. And there's no contest. Yeah. And there is, I mean, I feel like there's some pressure having it be on the board, but there's also like on, on the whiteboard, you're expected to have it erased. It's not this permanent thing. So there's a little less pressure there. Yes. And I said, you know, don't erase it. I want to look at it. And then when Mm -hmm. the other class comes in, they always go, I know that was a pig on on a skateboard. And I said, yeah. So it's really a lot of fun. It goes from one class to another. It carries over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've talked about shifting between different schools. Do you have any sort of tips that you would give a new teacher or a teacher who is making a shift like that? Oh, do I have tips for a new teacher? The main one is be organized. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is really important. And don't procrastinate what you can do today. Mm-hmm. Because besides just playing and having fun with the kids and organizing your supplies, you really need to pay attention to the administrative stuff and giving them um, grades and making sure that one project's put away so that you can have the other class do a project. So if you procrastinate, it's just going to pile up. I also found being in so many different people's classrooms is to be neat and clean. Because if you're not neat and clean, then the kids don't respect it. And your room is a mess and you've got paint everywhere. And then when kids come in from another class and they go to do their project, suddenly there's red paint on all over their project and they're doing pastel work. Mm. So I think it's really important to have a neat classroom. Teach sophistication. Bring the kids up 
from where they were. If you teach them to, you can do better than that. I know you can, or, or how can this be more sophisticated? And then some of them don't know what the word sophistication means. So then you have to explain that. Have a big personality. If you can, if you can be jolly with the kids and make a big fuss over, oh, look at that. I can't believe you did that. That's so wonderful. Or this is so cool. That really, really helps sucking in the child that is hesitant about doing art. Have passion, humility, and if you are wrong in a disciplinary situation, apologize right away. Mm-hmm. And the kids really like that. Do projects outside your comfort zone. I think that's really important. If you, my big thing is articulation because I've had a couple student teachers and sometimes after the kids are about to start a project, after the initial demonstration and introductions, they look at you like, what is she talking about? Or even for me, what do you want us to do? And I look at that, that it's my fault as a teacher. I didn't articulate properly what the kids need to do mm-hmm. because perhaps it was innate to me. And I found that things that are most innate to us as an artist are the hardest to articulate because mm-hmm. a lot of times ours is just a feel or an emotion. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to articulate a feel like when you're teaching shading. Well, can you feel the light going to the dark? Mm. No, I can't feel the light going to the dark. <laughs> what are you talking about? So this is, that's important. I use lots of color in projects because I feel that human beings like color. And kids get excited, especially when you use lots of color. You do steps, do projects that have a lot of different steps in them, whether they're drawing and then cutting and gluing and painting and curling use different media in a project if you can get keep them engaged by now we're going to switch gears and you have to pick up a scissor and now we're going to switch gears and you have to pick up that really keeps them interested and they feel a huge sense of accomplishment kids love to build they love to build much more than they love to draw And then the kids that are not gifted artistically, when they start to build, they feel like they can be successful with it. Oh, I have one. Learn to set limits with your faculty. Mm. Because I find that some faculty members, you know, they might do it unconsciously. Can I have this? Can I have that supply? Can I have this Mm. supply? Will you do this for me? Will you do that for me? Can I just send this child here? Can I just send them to you for that? You have to learn to say, I can't go there. I just can't do this. And Mm -hmm. there was the school, a Catholic school that I did the scenery for every year. It was part of the job description. And there was one director that wanted the main huge eight panels. And then they wanted eight more. And then they wanted this and that. She just wanted me to do all of this scenery stuff. And when I painted scenery with the eighth grade, I did it on Saturdays. And then I would try to do whatever I could in class. But I, I literally said to her, I said, honey, I have a life. I mean, I, my whole life is not doing scenery for this play. And she looked at me a little dejected. And I, I said, I'm sorry. I just... I can't do all of that. I'll do 
A, B, and C, but I can't do any more. So I think that that's really important that you set limit to the faculty. Oh, I had two, three more. Read to the kids. I stumbled on this out of the blue. I am the type that when you teach, you don't move on to another project until perhaps 85 to 90% of the kids are finished the project. So mm -hmm. in between, you get the fast artists and the medium and the slow artists that just quite aren't caught up yet. So what are you going to do with that in between time when you finished helping everybody? You don't need to work the room anymore and you've got some lag time. Well, I would get stories appropriate to the age level and I would read it to the whole class and I would say, okay, get up, get whatever you want, do your work, but don't talk and I'm going to read you a story. And the kids that were finished, they had to just sketch whatever they wanted to sketch. And if I read like the kids in the public schools, in the middle school, I read them those scary stories. There's three or four of them, which are like urban legends, cute urban legends that have gone around for gosh knows how many years. They love them. Or Greek mythology. They love them. You could hear a pin drop. And then when I started to teach the little kids, I would read them fairy tales. And even if I read like the first grade, the three little pigs or the elves in the cobbler shop, they love them or the, or the big bad wolf, the three little pigs. I mean, again, you could hear a pin drop and they'd actually, the little kids were, were funny because they just stop and they wouldn't do their work. And it's like, come on, you have to keep doing your work while I'm reading. <laughs> so I thought that that's a really good tool to have. And then do field trips where the kids are physically engaged. I would take the public school kids to my local art center and the art center would set up, I would have a group of kids, maybe 48, put them in three groups because it's one school bus and they'd go to three stations in the art center. So they'd have a watercolor station, a clay station, and then they'd have a molding wax station or printmaking station. And there were teachers from each from the art center at each discipline that wasn't me. And then the kids would bring all their work home. We'd stop at the Dairy Queen and McDonald's for a half of an hour and then go back to school. Oh my gosh. I didn't do any more of let's go see an exhibit at the um, museum because the kids would go through in five minutes and then want to go to the gift shop. Mm -hmm. And then another one I did, there's an international flower show in Philadelphia called the Philadelphia Flower Show. And there was a junior flower show category where you could do art projects that dealt with flowers or growing things. And one of them was nature photography. So I did this whole lesson with one grade on nature photography. And there's a nature preserve by the school. So we all hopped on, like sixth grade, hopped on a bus and we went to this nature preserve and there were chaperones for each group of five kids. And what we did was we just for an hour and a half, the kids with the chaperone, which were adults, ran around the whole preserve and they took nature photos with either an, an iPad or their iPhones. And then they got them developed at the local CVS or Walgreens, brought them in. There was a judge from the flower show and they picked one winner. So 
field trips like that to me are so memorable to the kids rather mm -hmm. than going to a museum. Now, the high school kids might like to go to a museum, but I think that eighth grade and under, mm -mm, it just, they don't appreciate it. They're just not old enough. And that's my experience. Somebody else might go to a museum and the kids absolutely adored it. They needed to then to tell me their recipe for having kids enjoy a museum. But the kids that I've always taught, the museums were boring. Mm -hmm. So they're my tips for new teachers. Yeah, I think that's great. There's so much in there. With the museum idea, I mean, I would say I know one educator who is just fantastic. Karina Esperanza here in Los Angeles, who I interviewed a while ago, she talked about how having students, especially students who normally don't have access to the museums that, you know, maybe they don't even realize they can go there. They don't feel comfortable going there, but bringing them to a museum can be really powerful. But she said she would actually create her own sort of museum guides or handouts, worksheets for students to do, and then lead discussions around specific artworks. So they're not necessarily going in and seeing all of these artworks. They're really focused, visiting just a few pieces in the museum and really talking about those pieces and then going through these handouts that she would make that were separate from what the museum handed out. Even if the museum had educational resources, she just found that having the opportunity to make her own and really tie it into other things she had already been talking about in her classes was super helpful and much more engaging. I guess what she did was really make those connections to things they were already learning about and thinking about, and that that was a good way to help with that sort of engagement in the museum. God bless her. That, yeah. you know, it's a shame that I didn't think about that. Yeah. Well, I think there's also something about seeing contemporary art, which I guess it depends which museums you're going to and what sections of a museum you're seeing. But I've seen that too, that I mean, I'm not that interested, actually, in seeing a bunch of work by old dead white guys. Like, I want to see work by women. I want to see work by people who have lived in a similar time that I'm living in. And I see that in students, too, that they are more interested in contemporary work that they can maybe relate to on a different level. Who's got work like that? We were in Miami a couple of, about two years ago, and we went to, I don't know the name. Museum, a big museum in Miami. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a multicultural museum. And the work in there was so exciting to me because I like color too. And a lot mm -hmm. of the work was very brightly colored, all these different genres, all these different mediums that I was just like salivating when I was walking around. And I didn't have to do, this is the other thing I found with children, when you have to read what it's about rather than the visual just popping out at you and, and you go, wow. And I agree with you about a bunch of dead white, pe white men from <laughs> Europe. I mean, come on, let's, there's more out there than uh, just them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. I think something else you mentioned was also, I mean, there was a lot of, of great, ideas in the tips you shared. But another one that stuck out to me was this idea of using many different media and switching gears a bit and talking about let's do a drawing and now let's cut it up and make a collage with it. And maybe we'll add some paint, just doing a variety of different materials that all go into one artwork. I feel like that's 
sort of mind expanding for students sometimes that they don't realize, oh, I could draw and then cut it up and make something different with it. So that's a really great tip, I think. Thank you. I know I took a grad oil painting class and going from oil painting, going from ceramics to oil painting, I was so frustrated because we just did the same process. You dipped your brush and you did a drawing, you dipped your brush in colors and then you painted. And mm -hmm. I'm not putting down painters at all. It's just not my thing. Mm -hmm. I want to do the drawing and do the building and then um, refine it and then paint it and then glaze it and then fire it again. It's just, that's the way I think in terms of doing artwork so that when I may, mm -hmm. meet painters, I always want to say, tell me about it. What about this excites you? It's like when you meet somebody in the business world. Oh, stocks and bonds really excite you. Tell me about the stocks and bonds, why it excites you, because it's such a different head trip than me. Mm -hmm. And I find that that's what I um, wanted to do with the kids was I let them do what I, I had them do what I wanted to do. <laughs> so it, it was doing all these steps. The process was so important to eventually get to the end product. And the process is the fun part, is doing all these different things and having your brain go from whoop, 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 you know, over like that. It's like, oh, this is so exciting. I love this. Yeah. That's where my head is. I have one more thing that it was funny because I was talking to my daughter who's a teacher. Mm. Who cares what color kids do things because <clears throat> I know that mm -hmm. I did a project of bears with the third grade and I said to the kids I said do you want a blue bear do you want a pink bear do you want a brown bear that's okay I don't care what color it is but then when I was talking to my daughter this morning she's a first grade teacher she mm -hmm. said oh I have a lot of trouble when the kids do other colors than what it should be mm -hmm. and she says I don't want a George Washington with blue skin I says I can relate to that because what you're doing is a historical figure. But if it's just something where the kids are having a lot of fun and you're not teaching history, then go for it. Then I'm thinking, you know, I, if we're doing an art project, I could see doing George Washington with green skin if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Why not? Didn't any yeah. Warhol do that to everybody? Yeah. And then, I'll, I mean, there's the idea too, maybe not at first grade, but with older kids, it might be they're making a comment about the history and all the problematic things in history. And that's amazing. That's an incredible thing that art has the power to do. Absolutely. That's a pretty profound statement. I like that one, mm -hmm. Rebecca. I yeah, like that and one. Giving your students the freedom to do that, I think, is really important. Yes. Um, and then the other thing is that loosens you up as a teacher. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, yeah. Why not? Who cares? I mean, it, that's what I think it's so exciting about teaching. And one of the main things is for you to learn from the children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another, you're making me remember all these past, past conversations with other artists. I think it was Deborah Riley, who I spoke to, who's talked about the similar sort of pushback from teachers that would be working with her, like the regular classroom teachers would be there with her and would sort of chastise a student for drawing two sons in their picture. Like there's only one son. And 
she would say, no, of course I know there's one sun, but I want to see what is in your imagination. I don't care that I look out the window and see one sun. I can do that anytime. I want to see what you're creating that's new in your artwork. And it's amazing that you drew two suns. Yes, I totally agree with you. Totally agree. Yeah. I want us to dive into your artwork a little bit more. We touched on it briefly, but I wonder if maybe you could describe the work you're doing now for someone who hasn't seen it. Right now I'm doing ceramic vessels. They are mid-fire white clay. They're fire to cone five. And I paint them with underglaze. I use a little bit of gloss glaze and oxides. And the other thing is no two pieces are similar. These vessels are, they could fit on a buffet right now. I'm starting to do some larger pieces, but the thing is my kiln is tiny. It's only about, oh, 16 inches deep. But mm -hmm. I try to have it be very whimsical and quirky and colorful. And for a while I did things where I added glass beads and mm -hmm. um, stone beads to the pieces. Most of them are watertight and they're tons and tons of colors, which mm -hmm. I like. I also like the underglazes and the fact that you can be very painterly with them. And with the gloss glazes, you cannot. In fact, mm -hmm. right now I'm taking a class at one of the art centers around here and everything is fired to cone 10 and they use gloss glaze where they do a lot of dipping and very little painting, but you can. Mm -hmm. So it's a totally different head trip than me. And I find it very, very frustrating because at Cone 10, the glaze, the underglazes fire distinctly different and mm -hmm. they take on a sheen to them. And I'm not into gloss glaze on my work because mm -hmm. I find that when you just have underglazes on the outside, it allows the viewer's feeling to penetrate more of the surface, where I find that when, for me personally, when I look at something that's got gloss glaze all over it, shiny gloss glaze, there's a visual stoppage before mm. I look at the piece. That shininess sort of makes me back off. And that's mm. just a personal feeling I have. So I've gone from doing the whole insides shiny where now I'm just sort of doing little touches here and there that are shiny to give it a highlight and then mm. especially maybe around the top edge of a vessel just make that glossy so it gives the illusion of a bit of a shininess mm. and I am working on a piece which is like a totem right now because I wanted to do something totally different and I have five pieces that are about 10 inches in diameter that I'm going to stack on a pole with a base on them. So that's pretty exciting to me right now because I've never done anything like that. And it's all fired in this cone 10 where I have to use these dipping glazes, hmm. which is making me think in a totally different direction. But for my other vessels, I just want to have fun 
and if it's not doesn't sit up straight it doesn't sit up straight if it's got mm -hmm. things attached to it that's i want to do that mm -hmm. i want to attach things rather than having something just perfect and slick that's mm -hmm. not my taste but that other stuff is beautiful absolutely beautiful but it's just not me i'm more mm -hmm. clunky and have junk hanging from it yeah, well, I love the painterly aspect of those underglazes not being glossy. It does almost, I mean, there's places where it almost looks like it could have been watercolor over the vessel, just the way that that clay or that glaze kind of moves and blends together. Well, thank and, you. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And then the other thing I'm noticing is I'm looking at it now and... There's so many, you talked about adding the glass beads, um, you're adding like screws and nails and buttons. And a lot of times it's, it seems like these things are kind of coming out from all sides. And it's interesting to me how sometimes you kind of like, there's a piece with screws just sticking out with their pointy ends kind of sticking out almost like thorns or like a little porcupine. It's like a dangerous object versus where they're kind of screwed in and you see the back of them and you can imagine the inside of that is like, you don't want to stick your hand in there. Yeah, I'm wondering about the ideas around those sort of protrusions. Um, when I was a kid, I loved going to the hardware store with my father. And when I was little at the hardware store, they would have bins of open nails and screws that you could just run your hands through and I loved that for some reason. So since I remember just loving screws and nails, when I got older and I started to do these pieces, somehow I wanted to incorporate them into my work. And mm -hmm. I also like the look of metal when it gets rusted. I love that rich color that it has to it, that the elements have patinaed, so to speak, on there. But that's really hard to do with brand new things. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. I talked to somebody about weathering screws and nails, and they said, oh, you've got to use this acid and do this, that, mm -hmm. and the other. And I said, oh, forget that. He says <laughs> it's very toxic. But mm -hmm. it's just some way to incorporate that love of hardware into my work. And mm -hmm. it wound up giving it a very different look to the work where it's sort of danger, danger, or which was not mm. my intent at all. It was just, mm. oh, let's put some screws in and see what it looks like. Uh. But it wound up changing the whole mood. The mm -hmm. only time I ever went out of my way to have a mood come from a piece was I did uh, Kamisi, which are those African nail effigies. I don't know if you've ever seen any in museums. They were yeah, I don't think so. sort of like voodoo dolls for African villages. And mm. they helped ward the evil spirits away from the African villages. And they would have a mirror on their bellies. And I don't know particularly why they would nail a nail into the effigy. It, it, it's a little different than a voodoo doll mentality or voodoo doll mythology but I just loved them. So I did a snarling dog 
and I have all these screws sticking out all over from it. Mm. And that was the only time that I wanted it to be sort of stay away. And mm. what was funny was when I was doing it, my mother who lives with us and my husband kept going, oh, there's that ugly dog she was doing, <laughs> that ugly dog, where my mother would actually put a towel over it. And then when I went to exhibit it at my local art center, I actually had buyers fighting over it to purchase it, ah. which was so funny because I just thought it was a lot of fun. Hmm. But that was my Canissi, my 2021 Canissi. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at that piece and it is, it's powerful. I can see why they were kind of like, oh, I don't want to look at that. <laughs> yeah, I just think it is so visceral without any explanation. I love African work. I love the ancient work from the Latin American peoples and the Indonesian people, from the Native American people. I just love all that stuff. Oh, and then I also love the folk art from the Appalachian people. And Mm -hmm. then the other place where there's some folk art that's really nice, believe it or not, is in Nova Scotia in Canada. Mm -hmm. A lot of folk art up there. And then do you kind of find yourself going down rabbit holes, learning about these cultures and the context in which they're making this work? Or is it more just visual kind of seeing seeing the work? It's both. Visual, that hits me first. It's important to me in my artwork to have everybody relate to what I'm doing. And that's why I did the diary pieces, because I think everybody can relate to a situation that I went through themselves. I'm trying to think of one that is really powerful. We had a couple deaths in the family Mm -hmm. and I did a scene of, I sort of combined all the deaths into one image where I had an elderly man hooked up to all these machines in a hospital in a hospital bed. And then Mm -hmm. the son sitting at the end of the bed snoozing. And I Mm -hmm. called it the vigil. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody can relate to that. And that to me is important where somebody looks at my work and they go, oh, I went through that with my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then when I do my more abstract vessels, I know my husband's so funny because he goes, oh, that reminds me of a this. Or a friend of mine Mm -hmm. said, oh, and that reminds me of a that. And that's important to me where somebody sees something in my work that reminds them of some kind of something. Hmm. And I'll say, well, it reminds me of a this or that, which is so different than what it reminds them of. Hmm. For instance, one piece that I have that I call twists, all those little pieces that stick out reminded me of when my little African-American boys in middle school would get little twists in their hair Hmm. and they looked absolutely adorable. And after I did all those pieces on there, I went, oh, it reminds me of that. And then it also reminded me of when you go to the beach and you do those drip sandcastles and the little Mm. drips go one on top of another. And it reminded me of that where somebody else might look at it and it reminded them of something else. So that's what I like to have when people look at my stuff where it's not, it doesn't have to be one thing. It can be whatever you happen to associate it with. And then the overall thing is I want people to look at my work and go, oh, I love the colors. Mm -hmm. 
because I think humans are really excited by color. So that's really important to me, whether you like the colors or not, but that they go, oh, look how colorful that is. Or mm-hmm. as I said, I love the colors. And the th- one thing that really hit me about the colors was when I was teaching, I had a girl who was a fantastic artist, but she put colors together that I would never put together. Mm-hmm. And I love to look at her artwork and I would go, so-and-so, I love that. I love that you put those two colors together and I would never do that. And then I had another boy and he put a lot of gold in his artwork. Mm-hmm. And that just really struck me. And that was one of the reasons that I will try to use color combinations that I never did before, simply because it's outside my comfort zone. But then when I look at it, it's like, oh, these are so beautiful together. I bet my girl from that group, that one that I talked about, her name was Shauna, that Shauna would use, and that I just think it's gorgeous. But then me as the, as the artist would never use before. So I wound up just becoming really attuned to colors and what people like. It was just a lot of fun and very interesting to me. Yeah. Well, the colors in your work are, it seems like most of the time it's very sort of bright and cheery and such fun color combinations. And then your sense of color is just really strong throughout. So I definitely see that. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, starting to kind of wrap up, I wanted to give you a couple of more get to know you questions. So one is what are you curious about right now? Artistically or just in general? Either one or both. Artistically, I'm interested in being more painterly with my underglazes. I'm interested in understanding and experimenting with cone 10 clay and their glazes, which is a totally different head trip. I'm interested in doing things that are taller. And that's why these totems I'm going to pursue at least a couple pieces and see how they turn out. Mm -hmm. Just on a personal level, pretty much anything that comes under my nose. I think I'm the typical teacher where at dinner, if something comes up in the news or I read something in the paper, It can be as minuscule as what's the history of oranges? Where are oranges indigenous Mm -hmm. to? And reading about that, or we were talking about Vivian Lee the other night because Cat on a Hot Tin Roof was on TMC with uh, Marlon Brando. And what was her life like? Because she did such wonderful troubled women. Mm. What was the other thing we, I was thinking of? Maybe if I see a small turtle in the woods, because I go in the woods pretty much every day. I noticed the box turtles out here where we are, the underneath of their bellies are always black. Why are mm. they black here and lighter somebody someplace else? So I might look that up. But I did mm. have a turtle friend tell me that, that the turtles, the box turtles out here, that's they're, that's what, how they are. They, they've adapted to having a black, I don't know what that, I'm sure it has a name, what that black piece is called, but they have black ones here where you might go to New York and they're lighter colored. So mm-hmm. kind of, I'm the typical teacher and I find teachers are very curious. Whatever is in the wind, I'll be interested in looking up and finding out about. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And then what is your favorite food? Kind of silly question. Oh, my favorite junk <laughs> food is pizza, ice cream, and a good cookie. Mm. My favorite good food is a good piece of heavy wheat bread and vegetables. Mm. Nice. And then is there anything that we missed? Anything, you know, you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to? I just want to touch on two artists that I've stumbled into recently. They're both ceramic artists, but this one guy, Robin Welch from the UK, he's from England. He passed away. I love his ceramics. Then there's a woman on Instagram and her hashtag is Catalina Viles. She's from Latin America and I absolutely love her work. They just really expand my imagination quite a bit. Oh, I know. I want to say one other thing. I know you asked the question, which I thought was pretty cool. What do you do if you have a creative block? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's always helped me was I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I find that if I am exposed to somebody else that's got a more bizarre imagination than me, that really kind of gets my juices going. And then um, looking at other people's artwork and one of the places where I found that I'm able to see a lot of that, especially ceramic work, is on Pinterest. If Mm -hmm. I type in contemporary ceramics, there's tons of stuff. And again, tons of people whose imagination, they just blow me away. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is exciting. And that's exciting. And this is exciting. And how can I take my personality and use that? So that's what I usually do. And I thought that that was a great question of yours. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fun one to ask. How do you overcome creative blocks? (laughs) This is just wonderful that you do this. I have to tell you. Oh, thank you. And then kind of wrapping up, is there anyone that you would want to thank or give sort of a shout out to? Yes. My two local art centers, the Mm -hmm. Chester County Art Association and the Wayne Art Association, and then the Third Street Gallery in Philadelphia and the In Liquid Art Group in Philadelphia. Mm Awesome. Awesome. And then last thing, where can listeners find you online? I have a website, www.judydesimoneceramics.com. Awesome. And I will link to that and I'll link to the art centers and gallery you mentioned and some of the artists as well. So everybody can check out all of those things. And just thank you so much, Judy, for taking the time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.